What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene and Matt Dust. I'm your host, Van Jackson. We got Gabby. <laughs> we, got... We, got... we got Gabby Magnuson. Hey. Pete McKenzie. Hey, yeah. Kiara Mitchell. Hi. Jake Dello. We had we had uh, a listener say that they lose track of whose voice belongs to whom on occasions. Um Three quick hits. Foreign policy has been really big the past week, bigger than usual. In my neck of the woods, North Korea. Uh, North Korea took credit for exploding the inter-Korean liaison office, which is this big deal symbol of inter-Korean cooperation. Uh, it's at Kaesong, which is on the North Korean side of the border, just barely, but it's like this joint project area and North Korea like gleefully took credit for it and said it's going to be part of like a series of hostile actions. This is a big deal partly because South Korea has been bending over backwards to appease North Korea and make peace and reconciliation and this is the first time North Korea has like done an attack while South Korea is in conciliation mode. So they've done lots of attacks before. That is a new kind of thing and it worries me because it's ringing alarm bells about we have not seen the worst of things yet or we're going to see more of this kind of thing because of the underlying reason for the attack, which is a communication to the United States. They're upset with South Korea for not successfully pressuring the U.S. to give North Korea sanctions relief. So the whole ballgame is sanctions relief. They're not getting it. Their economy is in the shitter and it's getting worse. So... They are lashing out because that's what they do. And because there's no end in sight to the sanctions regime, to sanctions pressure, we should expect to see more of this. Out of curiosity, Van, what makes you say they're doing things like gleefully, as you put it? Because uh, a few days before they did this, Kim Yo-jung, the sister of Kim Jong-un, she made a public statement where she said that they were going to be doing some aggressive shit. I forget what the exact wording was. She didn't say shit, but... Uh, <laughs> a series of aggressive actions against South Korea. She presaged it. Okay. And except for 2010, almost all of North Korea's attacks in the past had advanced warnings. 
But and this right. was this was the subject of my first book. Those warnings got lost in the mix in white noise because they make so many threats. And so everything bleeds into everything else and it's hard to know what's serious and what's not. But in this case, we know circumstantial we know from context that like North Korea is in a pretty dire situation. And then on top of it, they're like there might be some succession politics going on because Kim Jong-un is an unhealthy fat guy and <laughs> his, his sister is being possibly groomed to take over and she needs to show that she is her. She was like the face of a lot of that inter-Korean diplomacy in 2018, like all the nice nice. And um, there were lots of people in the North Korean system who were skeptical about all of that nice nice. And so if she's going to take over at any point, she needs to make sure that she's like shown her bona fides as a, as a hawk. What better way to associate yourself with hawkishness than to destroy the, in, the symbol of inter-Korean cooperation and take credit for it, basically. Even petty dictators need to pander. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> pander. The way the way Kiwis say pander sounds like panda. And so I thought you were I thought no offense. I thought you were talking either about like the symbol of China, like panda, or that you were talking about Ankit Panda, the diplomat guy who writes my my buddy. And so so you thought so you thought Pete was one of the biggest subtly racist or just a or just an asshole. I was like, China doesn't figure in here and Ankit Panda has nothing to do with this. Like what is going on? Um speaking of Ankit Panda, his neck of the woods, uh India, that you know, several thousand miles away, bracketing the other side of Asia, the same day of the inter Korean Korean liaison office uh attack. Chinese forces, PLA forces, beat to death 20-plus Indian soldiers. The upper end of the body count is still unknown. So they killed them with their hands and with wooden clubs with nails in them. And that is some gruesome shit. And it sounds horrible and like wanton aggression. And it might it might be but on China's part. But the reason it looks so bad is because China is not releasing its casualty numbers and this whole Sino-Indian border dispute is notorious for um, having little information and bad information constantly out there in the public. So it's like very hard to know exactly what's happening or having like reliable information. But the thing that we do know is that a lot of people died in a giant fucking melee, like basically like fist fights, bats and clubs, that kind of thing, which is insane. That's a lot of people to die. I've seen yeah. group fights before. Mm. I've never seen a group fight so big that more than 20 people died from it. Like that's, I can't even imagine what that was like. Two questions. Why, first of all, why isn't China releasing any of their numbers? And two, why was it a bat, like a melee fight? Oh, China's not releasing numbers because it's a dictatorship. Um, and right. they, <laughs> they don't release numbers. And when they do, they're usually fake. Yeah. But, you know, it's China. What do you think? But the bats and clubs thing was from apparently in 1996, India and China agreed not to allow guns within two kilometers of the line of actual control. And it was like oh. in, in their in their soberest moments, their most rational moments, they decided to make decisions that would create a buffer for conflict because neither one of them necessarily wants one, you know, um, at least circa 1996. 
And so they made this decision not to allow real weapons, automatic weapons, into that immediate disputed area and didn't stop the violence. The North and South Koreans had something similar going in the uh, Panmunjom area across the DMZ. And it's still, in 1976, North Korea beat to death two U.S. soldiers, and it almost triggered a war. And that was only over two soldiers, right? So not, not 20 plus. So for this Sino-Indian border dispute, there's, there's a lot of risk here, even though, because India might be backed into a corner, needing, needing to uh, show how tough it is, show its resolve, because you don't just let another country whoop the asses of dozens of your soldiers. So it's a little worrying. It's doubly worrying because they're nuclear states, and it's triply worrying because we don't have much good information in order to make sense of what's happening. So that's India. So my buddy, uh, John Lindsay, who's a security studies scholar at uh, University of Toronto, he tweeted out about, actually, I should have done this as stay off Twitter, but he put out a tweet saying, like, they have really taken the stability and stability paradox seriously. You are really trying to control escalation when you, yeah. you yeah. the bottom rung of the escalation ladder is basically your fists. It leaves you a lot more room to escalate, right? <laughs> It's interesting. Does it, does, it give, does it give either regime more ability to deny direct involvement? The fact that they're using these medieval weapons? Maybe in theory. Nobody's, the thing is, nobody's denying it. It's just about whose fault oh, it is. Yeah. So, like, China says that India provoked them, and that is entirely possible, and we just don't know. Mm. But, like, that's the kind of thing we need to know if we are to draw kind of insights about China from this, you know? Um, like, how... how we talked about this in a few episodes ago. I talked about this with Taylor Frabble at one point. But are we seeing China continuing to like manifest offensive policies from defensive motivations, or are they more expansionist? Because that has policy implications, you know. Mm, but cool. that is not the craziest shit that happened the past week. Excerpts from Bolton's <laughs> book. This is the last one. Yeah. Came out. Oh my Ooh. god. Oh my. So I, I don't even know which thread to pull on here because there's 592 pages worth of thread. But I think the thing that jumped out to me was the claim that Trump committed multiple acts of treason by directly asking Xi Jinping to help him win the election, which uh, should not come as a surprise at this point. But like it kind of makes a mockery of anybody who makes a living in the China threat industry. If you're trying to push decoupling or China competition and rivalry, any of that stuff, it's all a joke, man. The guy at the top is undermining you. Green lighting. He, he gave vocal support to the Muslim internment camps in Xinjiang for the Uyghurs. Big fucking disgusting problem, you know? The guy is addicted to Chinese help. So much so that mm -hmm. it pulled Xi Jinping in advance of the G20 summit. And his sign-off at the end was, I miss you. But, like, it's possible to explain how fucking demented that is. Yeah, I mean, Bolton describes at several points, at many, many points, his adoration, Trump's adoration of dictators. The things that, yeah. that's not just a SpongeBob meme in public. That's, like, a no-shit real thing. Like, he he is obsessed with strongmen. Because he considers them like go-getters, right? I guess. I don't know, man. <laughs> He's jealous. He's jealous. <laughs>
Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, for the first question, will any Hong Kong nationals be extradited from mainland China for criminal trials before August? Well, thanks to the new national security law, I'm actually going to say yes, although it's like it could be a, a, it may not be until after August, but I'm just going to say yes because, yeah. I don't know, I'm losing the plot on being able to make predictions at this point. But the uh, <laughs> there's no question that China is less constrained than it might otherwise be with Hong Kong. There's no question, particularly after these Bolton revelations about what Trump has said to, to Xi Jinping. The only issue is that like global public opinion matters too, right? Like it's one thing if you know mm, the U- yeah. you know the US isn't gonna like intervene to protect Hong Kong, but you still like China still values global public opinion on some level. And so mm. uh, it may wait it, it may wait to extradite Hong Kongers uh, until things are you know until it won't draw so much attention maybe we'll see. But I'll say yes, because it will happen at some point. <clears throat> well, sure. Question two. Following the United Kingdom expressing interest to join the Trans- Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement, will we see any other great powers seek to join regional trading blocks before December this year? So this is an interesting question. Um, I'm going to say no, but it is, uh, I think it's it's both smart for the UK to want to join uh, TPP or TPP 2.0, whatever. Mm. But it's interesting because right now there's no sign that the U.S. is going to be part of this, uh, and that's still. Yeah. I mean, TPP exists without the U.S. That's fine, but it would be much more potent if the U.S. were part of it. I think if Biden were president, he would sign on to it. But I'm not even sure about that because there's like a lot of pressure from the left against yeah. TPP. Largely, though, like without knowing details, there aren't a lot of specific provisions that the left has heartache about. It's it's the principle that uh, free trade is, you know, harming the middle class in effect. And so it's like exacerbating inequality, almost like a principled opposition. And so it's not clear if Biden will go with the like Obama 2.0 path or go down a more like Sanders Warren lean. But I feel like it would be hard for a Biden administration to not join TPP if close friends like the UK, who aren't even fucking Asian, you know, are in it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty interesting because even in New Zealand, we had quite a big pushback against Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm. like a huge pushback. I saw that when and, I first moved here. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was essentially our climate riots. That was, it was that equivalent. Oh, the WTO and, thing. Um, yeah, and it's the fact that England's in it probably is going to help a lot of people want to join it, well, especially in New Zealand anyway. Mm. Not that we ever really had a choice. <laughs> I don't think New Zealand was really like part of the said. original authorship. Like it was, they were. Yeah, we were pushed it hard. In on the ground floor, yeah. Yeah, I could smell John Key all over that thing. <laughs> now, I was going to read question three, but I don't know about you guys. But have you ever been directly threatened to be bullied by a professor of yours online? Because <laughs> I, because because I got told I am going to make fun of you for that. So here we go, and um, I hope everyone will have solidarity with me against this bully. Question three. I feel like, 
feel like Vans hyped this up so much. I've got very high expectations now. Like, a real, like, over high, it's a really like high standard. Vans high expectations. It's like you fix the typo. Feeling I've used a word that means something different in the United States than it does here, or maybe I'm just being stupid because I did write this when I was about thirty-six hours away. So let's see. <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Will we see any further attempts by India to globally consolidate their power following an agreement with Australia that allows them to use each other's military bases? What did I do wrong, man? Okay, so for for listeners, we, we plan our episodes out on like a Slack chat. And so like he puts the questions out beforehand sometimes. And I sometimes. Looked, I looked at this question in prep and I was like, oh, I'm going to make fun of you for the way you worded that question. But he doesn't know what precisely I mean. So he's been agonizing about (laughs) what's wrong with the question, (laughs) which is a kind of like slow drip water torture, um, which was not my intention. But then once I realized that he was like agonizing, I thought it was funny. So the fucking professor tells you you said something wrong. I fight. So shit, man. Oh, I'm sorry. Fucking idiot. (laughs) So the I get your your the gist of the question, but what was funny to me was like you were saying that Australia and India uh, establishing a reciprocal agreement for basing access that that was the global consolidation of Indian power, which like. (laughs) Oh. India is not a global power. Reciprocal <laughs> access rights are like not that big of a deal. India is not trying to, you know, occupy the region. Uh, it almost, no offense, it's almost like a kind of like Marxist imperialist view of, of basing <laughs> posture, where it's like it's all a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> the grand Indian Empire yeah. the open desert of Australia. Well, okay, here's my reasoning. Yes, here it is. One, it is a conspiracy. Of course. And two, and, and secondly, I would consider any country that can has a nuclear weapon as a global power in a sense. So, you know, this is a question from security studies, like what constitutes a great power? Uh, incidentally, and some people think if you have nukes, you should count as a great power. My I mean, shit! I wish my professor answered the question when I asked. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> I am. I mean, I tend to think that if you have nukes, you are a great power. But then I look at at North Korea and Israel, India, and I'm like, eh, I don't think so. So I don't know. India. Maybe you maybe you can count them as a great power. This is to me. This was like a pretty anodyne thing. Like not a, I don't know, not a big deal. I don't think even India is concerned yeah. about its global power. I think it's concerned about a war with China, and like it's probably consumed by that and a little bit of Pakistan. That's that's production market this week. There we go. Um, thanks for making me be the most vulnerable I've ever fucking been. (laughs) Ben's just systematically working to bring everyone on the pod in touch with their inner emotions to a greater extent. It's actually a a therapy process. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right, so for Stay Off Twitter this week, uh, I've got one from Rachel Rizzo. Director of Programs at the Truman Center for National Security, the Truman Project. Um, She, I think I fucked up that name, actually. I don't know. 
She's at the Truman Project. And she just says one of the funniest things I've ever seen on Twitter. Lord, grant me the confidence of the young man whom I've literally never met in my life, but who went to an Ivy League school and emailed me requesting that I let him know when we can schedule a Zoom call to help build out his DC network. Oh my God! What? Wow. <laughs> Holy! Shit. The entitlement, the male bravado, the narcissism—it's so. There, there are lots of real people like this. I get hit up by people like this all the time. This is insane. This is such an insane. I can't even. Reaching out is fine. Reaching out to like connect with people if you're yeah, genuinely interested in what they have to say. A hundred percent. Being so explicit about doing it to build your network is fucking bonkers. It's such a like <laughs> Chet, Chet from Wall Street kind of move. <laughs> like the <laughs> like uh, uh the entitlement just grates me. And like look. I believe in confidence. I believe in exuding confidence. Uh, I I come from a school of thought that says closed mouths don't get fed, which is the opposite of tall poppy syndrome, right? But tact matters, right? How you do it matters. Part of me can't help but think that this dude wouldn't have been this explicitly bold if it wasn't if if it wasn't Rachel Rizzo, like if it wasn't a woman, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I hope this guy's a listener to the pod. I'm I'm fine too yeah. with like being proactive and reaching out too, mm. but like this is just so naked. Like you're not trying to build a relationship, you're trying to commoditize a relationship, you know? Like I don't know. Hey, can we catch up for a coffee to um have a chat and discuss what you can do for me? Um I think that'd be really important <laughs> on my end. Uh, <laughs> That's basically it. So my first tweet of the week comes from Susan Hennessy, who is a lawfare executive editor and CNN national security and legal analyst. Her tweet reads, one interesting wrinkle for the government is that in order to claim elements of Bolton's book are classified, the government must admit the information in question is true. There's no such thing as a classified lie. And that statement is just so simple and obvious, but it like still hits hard, yeah. you know? No, it's true. And like, all, the thing is, it's like you, you take Bolton himself with a grain of salt, except that yeah. we, we're not starting with zero information. We're starting with <laughs> particular frames of reference and a track record, a breadcrumb trail that Trump has left that has let us construct a, like a model of like what he's all about. And it's a completely treasonous, corrupt, simple-minded model that loves dictators and that's precisely what Bolton shows us, but in living color, like vividly, you know? And the smoking gun proof of it is not just that what he's saying fits with our understanding of Trump. It's that the government is trying to say that uh, this is illegal and it's classified. And it is totally true, which I missed to this point before uh, Susan Hennessy's tweet. If it's not true, then it can't be classified. Yeah, yeah. It just made so much sense. Like, I didn't, like, I think you're right. Like, you don't really think about it until she pointed it out. And you're like, wait. Yeah, totally. (laughs) No, it's good. Sweet. So then on to our second tweet of the week from your boy, Matt Duss. He's responding to a tweet from Robbie Gramer, highlighting a Bolton quote from his interview with WSJ that reads, Xi had explained to Trump why he was basically building concentration camps in uh, Xinjiang. According to our interpreter, Trump said that Xi should go ahead with building the camps, which Trump thought was exactly the right thing to do. To this, Dust says, 
This is genuinely shocking, but also worth remembering that internal government docs show China explicitly modeled its Uyghur crackdown on the U.S. war on terror. Giving vicious authoritarian regimes permission didn't start with Trump. So it's a burn, but it like brings it full circle to this analytical point, which uh, we've talked about before. It's something that is not emphasized enough, particularly in Washington, that the pursuit of, and this is why I keep beating the fucking drum on military superiority as a problem, the militarism in U.S. foreign policy, the military dominance of like strategic thinking has mm. has created so many costs that don't get observed, that don't get assessed, that don't get linked back to the militarism in U.S. foreign policy. And so like we talked about the MRAPs, the mine resistant vehicles, right? The militarization of police yeah. because of this, right? Mm -hmm. Salafi jihadist militarism up, terrorism up 400% during the global war on terror because of the global war on terror. And then now we have this massive Muslim internment camp in Xinjiang that is a, a gross human rights violation, except that mm -hmm. the way China is doing it, the effectiveness of it, is directly thanks to America's global war on terror. So China would be probably trying to oppress its Muslim population, even if the war on terror had never happened. But we've made it a lot easier for them to do that, and we've made it we've we've made it possible for them to do it while we sort of turn a blind eye, and then we only pay attention to it when it gets as egregious as it is now, mm -hmm. when it's basically too late to do anything about it. You know, right. So he brings it, Matt brings it full circle. Good for him. Is this kind of like influence uh, due to American militarism, like mostly to do with kind of like the U.S. war on terror or has it like, is it presidented before that? Is there like other instances before, um, you know, the early 2000s where this influence has affected in other areas? So it's affected fucking everything in foreign policy for the better part of like 70 years. It's per It's sort of pervasive, but there's a, you know, there's a book to be written, I think, about the origins of militarism in American foreign policy. I think a lot of people who observe U.S. foreign policy are familiar with lots of examples of, you know, militarism taking over, but or like a militarized response to things. The fact that it comes from like a larger mindset has to have roots somewhere. Like that's the book that I'd be interested in seeing. Right. Yeah. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. So this week for Armchair Analysis, we've got a piece from Foreign Affairs by, called How to Prevent a, a War in Asia. And it's by Michelle Flournoy, I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Van will be able to tell me if that's how I pronounce it, because Michelle was actually Van's boss at one point. So yep. this is going to be an interesting <laughs> article, article to get his take on. Nice. The premise of the piece is that China is going to become increasingly tempted to conduct aggressive actions. Um, and so the author uses the example of seizing Taiwan um, as America's domestic crises deepen. And that given China's kind of doubling down on anti-access and area denial capabilities, that America is going to find it harder to deter that and harder to respond if it happens. And so Michelle then writes that the Pentagon has to engage in new and different tactical, technological and strategic activity to offset that deterrence gap. She, for example, gives an she says that the US military should get the capacity to 
credibly threatened to sink all of China's military vessels, submarines, and merchant ships in the South China Sea within 72 hours to force them to think twice. Similarly, she talks about moving towards smaller and more agile force packages like submarines and unmanned underwater vehicles, um, kind of temporary bases, highly mobile units, that kind of thing, uh, and having more emphasis on joint operations. Basically, what she's saying is that the Pentagon has to focus on a lot more flexibility and a lot more innovation in the kind of strategic and tactical choices that it makes. And then she kind of concludes by explaining that China has to not only believe the US has the capacity to deter it through those kinds of new and innovative techniques, but actually will do that. And so America presumably has to first get rid of Trump, but secondly, clarify its commitment to the Indo-Pacific and to its allies in the region. It, it was interesting from my perspective because it was a combination of kind of soft uh, engagement with allies, signaling a commitment to the region, showing that you care kind of uh, policy advice, and then quite hard-edged technological improvement, uh, hardware improvements, kind of getting the ability to deter in that way. And I was just curious, Van, to, to hear what you were thinking about this. Yeah, so uh, I'll keep with truth to power here, even though she was actually my boss twice. So she was my boss when I worked in the Pentagon. Um, but then she was also the CEO of uh, Center for New American Security in 2014 when I left the Pentagon and joined the Center for New American Security for a while. And if Hillary Clinton had, had won, there's a chance she would have been my boss for a third time still uh, because she was going to be the Secretary of Defense under uh, Clinton, had Clinton won. So I'm going to try not to burn any bridges here. But I will say that there are things about this that I agree with and disagree with. I'll just try to be like tactful about it. On the agreement side, I think it's true that deterrence plays a larger role in Asian stability than most airy-fairy Asia scholars, for lack of a better phrase, would uh, argue. So I don't associate myself with like any particular um, paradigm. I'm like pretty agnostic about this stuff. But a lot of people who write from like a liberal or a constructivist or a critical theory frame about Asian security, they tend to focus on the regional institutions, on the informal elite diplomacy, on the formation of security communities and regional norms and like all of these things that are important to preserving um, stability in Asia. But they're not as important just as, as both logically and uh, evidentiarily as in, they're not as important as this previous period of U.S. unipolarity, like U.S. military superiority, U.S. alliances and the U.S. you know, great power detente understanding modus vivendi that it's had with China. Those things have played a huge role in um, preserving regional stability for the past generation. It doesn't mean that they always will, but historically it's just true that they have. And so like security studies scholars uh, and a lot of people like, you know, practitioners, policymakers take for granted the importance of deterrence for preserving stability. Whereas like a lot of scholars taking a critical view dismiss or they discount the role of deterrence. So then, okay, so I agree with that, right? Deterrence is crucial. Uh, if we want to avoid war, that's like a f an important first step of preservation, first principle. Then the question is like, how do you preserve deterrence? Okay. She is right that you have to worry about your credibility, which comes from capability. So your ability to do 
to fulfill commitments, your ability to fulfill the threats you make, right? I agree with all of that. She argues that it's based on dem uh, proof, the belief that the other guy has of your resolve, your willingness to use these capabilities. That is manifested both through your investments in technology and in your behavior. And so all of that is sort of uh, true. None of that justify. there's like a gap in the logic here where she goes from like, well, we need these uh, advanced capabilities and unmanned undersea vehicles and robotics and C4 ISR and China's got, it has more missiles than us. You know, our credibility is on the wane because people question whether we're willing to actually do the, fulfill these commitments that we've had in the past, particularly with Japan and South Korea. Investing in more capabilities will not fix your credibility problem with allies, right? And so the credibility of reassurance, like your ability to um, be perceived as reliable by allies, it's related to deterrence of the adversary, but it's different. It's not the same. And so your capabilities matter more to deterrence than to reassurance. But what she's talking about a lot in this piece is reassurance, not deterrent, right? And as much as deterrence is important for regional stability, deterrence is not failed. And you can't even really say that it's failing because like how do you prove that how do you show that she doesn't show it in the piece so like hanging this argument about she her she's underscoring a lot of reasons why we need military superiority and she's providing um details for what that would look like and i agree with some of the component parts of the argument but it doesn't necessarily scale up to the larger argument because especially for military superiority because deterrence in Asia is working on a day-to-day -day basis and marginal changes to our capability investments are not going to adjust that. Deterrence in Asia is easier than she presupposes. It's easier than um, the Pentagon presupposes. What she's making here is a pitch for force planning. This is a force structure and budget argument draped in strategery draped in like, you know, Asia policy analysis. You can make an argument about how you can reduce risk, reduce casualties by, you know, having better and more forces, more capabilities than the other guy, which is in this case, of course, China. You don't have to like accept this line of reasoning all the way down. The, the fact that deterrence is holding should make you question whether we do in fact need to keep throwing like good money after bad when it comes to um, $750 billion, $760 billion defense budget. It's quite egregious. She understands the value of allies and we need to reassure allies, but like she's not starting from a place of like, what do they care about? What do they want? She's starting from a place of like, well, they'll be most reassured when we can deter. And in order to deter, we have to have the right capabilities. What are the right capabilities? Well, it's all this advanced bullshit. And like, that's only hitting some of the problems. It's not like the right way to think about all this. And the, the biggest concern I have is like, if you're foregrounding deterrence in Asia rather than reassurance and rather than an actual um, geopolitical strategy, you're, in, you're introducing a lot of risk, right? So it's like you're spending a lot of money, but you're, you're going down the path of like, you're being fatalistic about the need to arms race, basically, because China is not like a static adversary. And what she's arguing for doesn't show any evidence of like new types of operations or new concepts for how you fight. 
it's all just like we need the new capabilities, we need innovative capabilities. But how you use these things is what's decisive, right? Like in a chess game, everybody gets the same pieces on the board, yet somebody still wins most of the time. And it's the one who wins is the one who has like the superior concept for how to win, the, the, the makes the better wager with what you've got. So she's focused on the what you've got. And like everybody in the Pentagon I've ever met, they're not so concerned with the wager or like how do you array this or employ this to maximum effect, to maximum advantage. And so to accept, to simply just like accept an arms racing dynamic is, is not a winning strategy, particularly given that allies, maybe a little bit Australia, maybe a little bit Japan, but like in general, nobody is reassured by America like over-militarizing its posture in the region. And other than the military stuff, America's not doing much in Asia. So that was a very long response, but it was the best way to not be histrionic. So. No, it was a really good response. And I think, I mean, moving slightly to the side, I think similarly interesting to what she's saying in this piece is why she's saying it. You kind of alluded to the fact that she was probably top or near the top of the list to be Hillary Clinton's Secretary of Defense if, mm-hmm. if Clinton had won. Is this part of kind of positioning for that kind of role in the case of a, a Biden administration? And if so, what does that tell us about what she kind of thinks the the kind of necessary steps are for that role? Uh, I mean, it, it could be an audition. I, I don't know if she has those ambitions anymore, but she is she's a, a godfather type figure in this space of defense policy, force planning, um, defense strategy. She's one of like the kingmakers, so or queen makers, I guess I don't know, but she doesn't need to audition or like show her street cred. Like everybody knows her street cred, so she may just be making this argument because she thinks it's like the right argument to make. And if you're trying to preserve U.S. military superiority and to justify the giant defense budget, I think this is a good way to do that. I just think that it's full of holes. Uh, and, and risks that are not worth accepting. Like, I reject many aspects of this. Um, the, the, if there's anything I really like about it, it's the fact that it's foregrounding deterrence as something that we cannot lose sight of And it, if we care about peace in the region. Um, and then the question, the valid space for debate is like, well, what's the best way to go about deterrence? And part of that involves like clear-eyed assessments about adversaries or competitors. Uh, and then part of that is about actually what will what will affect the balance of power in practice, like what will or won't deter and reassure. So like I think those are valid conversations to have. I just don't agree with her take on them. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for AMA this week, we have three questions. One was added during the podcast, so I've I've only just read it now. So the first one is from Sussman Shrestha, long-time listener, first-time asker. What are your thoughts on the role of IR theory when it comes to the actual formulation of policy? Does it actually have practical applicability, or is it used purely in an academic environment? So good question. I use it in a practical practice environment. Like I actively try to bridge these two worlds. Um, I know lots of policymakers who do not 
for me, theory is something that you can use. So for one thing, you can always use it and often implicitly do use it to structure your thinking, to structure your analysis about a problem. So power in the Obama administration, right, the Thucydides trap, power transition theory was this dominant frame that Obama officials had for how to view the rise of China and by extension, China policy. And because the theory told us that more often than not, a rising power uh, facing a, in a hegemonic system ends up in a war with the hegemon, the desire was to avoid that outcome that the theory told us about. And so based on the policy, based, based on the theory, based on that frame, they designed policy in a way to try and manage China's rise to avoid that outcome. Right. And like you can extend that to so many different foreign policy issues, foreign policy decisions. And the thing that I, I do in recent years a lot is use theory as a way of diagnosing the risks of policies. So when, when you are making a policy decision or designing a policy or designing a strategy, you know, you'll you'll say something like, well, we're going to focus, uh, you say we're going to do X, Y, Z actions, and it involves a mishmash of things. Um, and it, when you reduce it down, what you're logically talking about here is um, economic interdependence, right? And there's a body of literature that says economic interdependence causes peace or, you know, the capitalist peace, for lack of a better phrase, right? So it's not that you believe that, it's that you can say, if we're going to change this relationship of interdependence, this policy that we've established between the US and China, for example, if we change that to the extent that the body of theory is correct and it's a cause of peace, as we undo that, we are risking undoing a cause of peace. And so in that way, you can like figure out where the risks and blind spots are in your strategy decisions and your policy decisions by knowing theory. And none of that means that like you internalize these theories or that you believe these theories. And that's why I like I say like I'm the matrix, you know, like I'm I'm none of these things and all of these things at once. Because they're all useful as a way to make sense of things. And they're going to be more or less useful depending on how you want to use them. So like I think IR theory has a lot to offer policymakers. But the way that it's taught in most schools makes it feel like it's completely irrelevant. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. Because <laughs> the reason the reason I loved um, security studies was because it was complete. It was the exact opposite of that. It was things first were described in a real world sort of way, and then it was sort of brought to theory, mm. which made it a lot more sense. As yeah. opposed to telling first year students this grand theory and then forgetting to tell them when it actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Second question is from Martin Weissman. What do you think is more dangerous right now, the China-India situation or North Korea? This is a fantastic question. <laughs> I, I was actually going to tweet yeah. about this yeah. earlier. Um, so first of all, India watchers or like people who are experts at watching the whole Sino-Indian thing, they know the history better than me. Up until this, these deaths, they were not worried at all. Like I was more worried than they were. Now they're surprised about the deaths because it's the first casualties along the Sino-Indian border since like 1975. So now they're like, oh, so past precedent is not as useful, um, or at least it might 
lead you astray because like we weren't expecting death. So um, now everyone's a little more worried about China, India, but it's also like the fact that this happened with sticks and stones or whatever, that was because of a deliberate decision to, for both of these guys to restrain themselves. And so like, I think that tells us that China and India do not want a war with each other or there's an outcome that they would prefer to war, right? There are real risks of escalation between China and India but I think even if they ended up fighting a con, like even if they fought a conventional conflict or a limited war, I think it would be controlled. There's a strong desire to control escalation or to minimize escalation with North Korea. So like you would say, so maybe I would phrase it like there's kind of like a decent high risk of, of conflict happening, but the conflict is likely to be limited or constrained um, with North Korea it's a totally different kind of like crisis dynamic because nuclear weapons and North Korean strategy is, is premised on kind of like asymmetric escalation. And so the, the odds of a conflict with North Korea are quite low, but if a conflict happens, the odds of nuclear use are insanely high. It's almost guaranteed that if we have a war with North Korea, nukes are going to be used. It'll become a nuclear war. So much less yeah. constrained, but um, because it's because a war would be so costly and there's no way to keep it from going nuclear, there's a lot more incentive on all sides to ever prevent that conflict from happening in the first place. So like maybe a conflict with North Korea is less likely than between China and India, but the upper end costs would be way higher much harder to constrain this is probably going to sound like it lacks any nuance at all but is the fact that north korea is a rogue state not aid the fact that they're more likely to to use irrational actions like uh, like go to war well it's not not i mean it doesn't the the payoff for war doesn't make sense um, yeah because okay. their existence yeah, is at risk so like the problem is just what I've written about is like they have a strategic culture that places high emphasis on offense, but it's offense in the name of uh, deterrence and coercion. It's not offense in order to bring about war. Their theory of the case is you go on the offense to prevent war. And the risk is that they end up being wrong because we've had enough or South Korea's had enough or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the, raw, the, the risk is that their bet, their wager is wrong. But what their wager or their bet is, is that you got to push the envelope, court friction, go on the offense, you know? Well, that's really interesting because the image that's usually portrayed of North Korea is not only like evil dictatorship, but also somewhat insane. Yeah. Like, you know, like crazies and picking fights. And, but there is, people often forget there is a real strategic level to what North Korea does and they're not self-destructive. Very smart. Yeah. There's a reason yeah. why they're still, they still exist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The third question is from Petrophile. Was the Polish invasion of the Czech Republic earlier this week really an really an accident? Man, so I think it was an accident, (laughs) but to be honest, I read the headline and not the article, so I don't even really know what happened. I have to what what happened was that Polish forces um occupied a church i think it's somewhere in silesia i think and they occupied a church that was on the czech side of the border and they 
forgot. <laughs> so well, apparently it was an unofficial accidental invasion. Uh, it's all European Union. It'll be all right. <laughs> How do you have that head of state conversation, right? Like, what does what does the prime minister say? Oops. They're like, "Oh yeah, whoops!" Like, that's why world leaders need text chains. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the best the article said um, that they Poland had recognised it was a mistake, but still hadn't apologised. <laughs> we're not about to show weakness all right guys that's gonna do it buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic for uh throwing us money worldpoliticsreview.com slash undiplomatic for the world politics review newsletter our sponsor catch you next time peace